sick of sorrow, sick of the pain, sick of hearing again and again that there's gonna be peace on earth. Warcast for Catholics. Welcome to another episode of the Catholic Peace Fellowship Podcast. I'm Mike Griffin, and today's podcast is entitled Roma. Yes, that's right. We are going to Rome. Yours truly, along with Tom Cornell, who was a co-founder of the Catholic Peace Fellowship, and Joshua Castile, the young soldier who was in the Iraq War and then became a conscientious objector. The three of us are going to Rome, and we'll be meeting with several officials of the Vatican. We've already lined up a meeting with Cardinal Martino, the head of the Pontifical Council for Justice and Peace, and who knows, perhaps, perhaps even an encounter with El Papa, with the Holy Father himself, Benedict XVI. We're going to talk today a little bit about that trip, why we're going, what we'll be doing, and how you can help. But first, we want to play for you something that came also from Rome, from Vatican Radio. They got word of the activities of the Catholic Peace Fellowship. They contacted us and asked if they can do an interview, and then they produced a segment which highlights very well the work of the Catholic Peace Fellowship. It's sort of a prelude to our trip to Rome and will form the basis of what we will do there. When there, we're going to be talking about how the church can make an even stronger stand for conscientious objection and selective conscientious objection, and perhaps even say that unless and until the military respects the rights of conscientious objectors, in all war, and in particular wars, the church ought to take a much more skeptical stand about endorsing or even encouraging the prospect of enlistment in the military. So we'll talk a little bit about that. But first, let's turn to this Vatican Radio. Now, we're told the Vatican Radio is actually perhaps the largest producer of radio shows in the world in several languages, and this fortunately is in English. And we'll play that excerpt now and then talk about our trip to Rome after we finish. Recent surveys in the U.S. have shown growing disapproval of the war in Iraq, where the deadly violence shows no sign of abating. But what about the troops who are out there in Iraq, often in the front line of fire in a country where the daily bloodshed has become so ubiquitous? How difficult is it for them to carry on their mission, especially when back home public discontent with the war has grown? And more Americans are questioning whether the war is a just one. Susie Hodges has been speaking to some people who have their doubts. We don't fire warning shots. If you move your selector lever from safe to semi, you shoot to kill. Chilling words to be addressed to a young U.S. soldier by his commander on his arrival in Iraq. The soldier in question was Joshua Castile, who's now left the military and registered as a conscientious objector. But what are the most common reasons or set of circumstances that prompt a soldier to take that momentous decision? Experts in the field say that over the past three years, thousands of U.S. troops who have been deployed in Iraq come to the realization that they no longer want to fight or be deployed there. Surveys show that many of the soldiers in this position are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Others have family or medical problems, or else have moral qualms about continuing to fight in this particular war. 
As a result of their experiences in Iraq, some of the men and women applied to become full-blown conscientious objectors, who refused to participate in war in any form. Others become what is known as selective conscientious objectors. This means they refuse to fight in the Iraq War, for instance, because they believe it's an unjust war. Michael Griffin is the education director for the Catholic Peace Fellowship in Indiana. A group that supports conscientious objectors through education, counselling, and advocacy, he says they are seeing a growing number of soldiers who are refusing to fight any longer in Iraq. We are hearing from definitely more soldiers.、Uh, we estimate that last year, at our office alone, we had over a thousand phone calls. Now, many of those are people who are trying to. Get discharges. Perhaps they're being called up a third or a fourth time to Iraq, and they have families. But an increasing number seem to be what are what are called conscientious objectors, those who have a moral qualm about participating in the war. One of the most difficult and traumatic situations for any soldier to face when serving in a war is to find himself involved in the killing of innocent civilians. Michael tells us about the case of one soldier he knew, who'd been ordered to open fire on an Iraqi woman at a checkpoint. What, what we hear across the board is、uh, soldiers who see massive civilian casualties. And one of the soldiers who came back from Iraq and contacted us, and his unit was going to be redeployed, and he said, "I'm not going." He said. I believe it's my human right not to kill an innocent person, and if I go back to Iraq, even with good things that that we do in Iraq, I know that it will involve killing innocent people. Another man we worked with was at a checkpoint, and there was a translation issue. A woman was not understanding that she was supposed to stop, and he was ordered to fire, and he fired on her and and killed her. And as she dropped to the ground, she had a white flag coming out of her coat, and、uh, she was just trying to get information about a detainee. And so that's a, a second realm of objection is is objection to to the killing of innocent people. Those soldiers who come to believe the war in Iraq is unjust and seek exemption from duty there are only a minority of all the conscientious objectors. But as Michael explains, they face a jail sentence for their belief, rather than the chance of an honourable discharge. Interestingly, is there is a soldier, Lieutenant Aaron Watada, an officer who is. Facing up to six years in prison because he refused to deploy, basically on the grounds that this was a war, an illegal war, a war that was not being waged by the right authority. It's interesting. He's saying the very things that Kofi Annan said, and even the very things the Vatican said, and the U.S. military is court-martialing him, and he's facing up to six years in prison. But just how tough is it for a soldier to apply to become a conscientious objector? A stance that is often seen. As the mark of a coward, and the betrayal of a soldier's duty to fight for one's country. Michael again. It is very difficult for them, and in fact, what we find is that probably well over half of the people who contact us don't actually follow all the way through with the application for conscientious objection because of precisely those pressures. They're called a coward. They're told even now. This is what's really troubling as a Catholic. They are told often by their chaplains, by military chaplains, 
well, you know, the war's on, so time for talk of conscientious objection is over. Well, that's just not the Church's teaching. The Church teaches that a soldier has a right in conscience to refuse participation in a war in general, or even in a particular act in war that they deem contrary to the moral order. So it is hard, but I must say, sometimes Catholic chaplains are not helpful in supporting these guys and what the Church teaches. Could this be because pacifism is not a dogma as such of the Catholic Church, even though, as you say, some individual Catholics are pacifists or become that way because of their experience under arms? I think you are correct that pacifism is is not a dogma of the Church. In fact, I mean, one of the things that we say, our organization, the Catholic Peace Fellowship, we're a very traditional Orthodox in terms of our doctrines. We're very Catholic. And one of the things we say is we actually don't like the term pacifism. We prefer the term that the early Church used for pacifism, which was called Christianity. But... We do have this just war teaching, and it, but it's important to know that, you know, Catholics can, legi- as you mentioned, Catholics can legitimately, based on their experience, reject the use of all violence, or they can adhere to the just war teaching. Michael says both Pope Benedict XVI and his predecessor, Pope John Paul II, provided clear moral leadership when it came to the debate over whether it was right to go to war in Iraq. The Vatican has been brilliant and excellent, in our view, in standing up to the aggressive foreign policy of the United States. However, in the United States, what many, many war supporters are saying is this. They said, well, the Vatican has, has, has said no to the war, but has said nothing about individual soldiers. John Paul II and the present Holy Father have been prophetic on the question of this war. And it was his faith that played a key role in Joshua Castile's decision to become registered as a conscientious objector. Joshua served in the Iraq War for seven months and worked as an interrogator at the notorious Abu Ghraib jail just after the scandal broke involving the torture of Iraqi detainees there by U.S. troops. He told me how the abuses he saw and heard about whilst he was there helped prompt him to reject his role in the military, a move that was also linked, he said, to his decision to become a Catholic. I had about 133 combat interrogations at Evergrave, and I was a part of the unit that was sent there to clean the place up. Um, it was after the scandal had broken. And so we were, we were doing things very, very particularly. We were interrogating under the watchful gaze of cameras and visiting dignitaries because they wanted to make sure that torture was no longer happening at the prison. But when that happened, all of the dark activity went elsewhere. And I have friends who interrogated for mobile interrogation teams for, uh, for the Marine Corps and for Special Forces. And, uh, and they were torturing quite regularly. They were stripping men naked in, in, you know, during winter, pouring ice-cold water over them, and then putting them in front of air conditioning units to keep them hovering over hypothermia. People were getting their hands smashed with hammers, baseball bats being you know, smashed into their shins. And uh, all of this was happening before and after Abu Ghraib, and well before and after you know, Donald Rumsfeld said that, that we were abiding by the spirit of the Geneva Conventions. So this was happening while I was doing like, the so-called nice interrogations. So what was the actual moment when Joshua realized that a career as a soldier was not for him? It's almost like a religious conversion where things slowly build, and you realize you have been a conscientious objector for years. Um, you've been opposed to what you've been doing for so long, and that's why you haven't been able to sleep at night. But now it's time to move forward and to actually to shape your life upon a new doctrine. And for me, that happened while interrogating a, uh, a Saudi Arabian uh, jihadi. He was 22 years old, and he'd never fired a gun in his life. 
He was an idealistic kid from Saudi Arabia whose cousin had died while fighting in, in Iraq, and he came in to do his duty, to come in and, and, and fight. His understanding of jihad was, was almost synonymous to just war theory. It was simply, there was an aggressor in a Muslim land. It is the duty of the Muslim man to defend the lands. And um, we started talking about, about ethics and the cycle of vengeance. And I asked him why he came to Iraq to kill. And then he asked me why I came to Iraq to kill. And I said, I didn't come here to kill. I came here because it was my duty, which was very similar to, to you know, his own circumstances. By this time, he knew I was a Christian. But he said to me, you know, you don't follow the teachings of Jesus to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you and to turn the other cheek. And I told him I thought he was right, that I was a complete contradiction. And so I terminated the interrogation, and I went back to my chief of command, and I said, I, I can't interrogate this guy any longer, because if I go back in that room, all I'm going to see is a young man in search of answers. And I'm not that much different than he is, because I'm a young man searching for answers. And all I'm going to want to do is talk to him about ethics and the cycle of vengeance. And I'm going to want to share with him the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that's not my job as an interrogator. So if you want to get information out of him, you're going to have to find somebody else. Even after that difficult decision has been taken to apply for conscientious objection, the person in question often faces strong disapproval from his family and friends, as Joshua found out. You know, I come from a military family, and there are people within my extended family that thought that I was a traitor that thought that I, I was siding with the enemy or I'd become some sort of, you know, liberal, you know, nut or something. And they couldn't, re they, they couldn't really see the, the degree to which this was founded upon my Christianity. A significant proportion of the conscientious objectors Michael is coming into contact with are highly traumatized by their experiences in Iraq. What is especially alarming, he says, is that instead of being treated for their emotional wounds, they are often being redeployed by the military. We are seeing a dramatic increase in post-traumatic stress disorder. In 2004, one of the most respected medical journals in the United States, the New England Journal of Medicine, published the Hogue Report. And this team of doctors found that about one in five Iraq war vets are suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. Now, it's interesting that about that same number also report having been involved in civilian deaths. What we are finding is that more and more soldiers are coming back, and they, they are showing great signs of stress. But the problem is they're being redeployed. And so we're going to have a wave of, of young men and women who are going to come back and who are coming back in great need. These are young souls who are scarred and know what it means to kill another person and trying to recover from that. And so that's why the church's no to war, which is so strong coming from uh, John Paul II and Benedict XVI, church's no to war needs to be more than a political no. It needs to be a personal no. This is an area where the church needs to reach out. So many people in this country will say, I want to support the troops, but I do not think that we are ready as a nation nor as a church to really tend to the wounds of war that are going to be very evident in years to come. That was Michael Griffin of the Catholic Peace Fellowship, and you also heard the voice of Joshua Castile, a Catholic and conscientious objector. And I'm Susie Hodges. I think it gives a really good sense of what we do here and what we're going to be doing in Rome. So let's talk just a few moments about that trip. We are leaving on March the 9th and then staying all the way until March the 21st. We will be there on March 19th, the Feast of St. Joseph and the fourth anniversary of the Iraq War. 
We will be there. We will meet, as I said, with Cardinal Martino and several others to discuss some issues. First, how can you help? How can all of us who are part of this work at the Catholic Peace Fellowship contribute? Well, as you'll find on our website, catholicpeacefellowship.org, we have a basic outline of the trip. And one thing you could do is if you have some ideas or suggestions, send us an email from our website. If you have any contacts in Rome, folks working for peace that you'd also like us to connect with, send us that. Also, we have, we have really tried to um, drum up support so that we can pay for this trip. It's not, it's not free. So if you can send along a donation, you can do all of that on the website. But we want this to be something not just for the three of us, but for all of those who are interested in Catholics and in our being a sign of peace to the world. One of the things that we are going to suggest to get down to the specifics is that there be a clarification in the coming years of something that's in the Vatican, uh, sorry, something that's in the Catechism. And that is Catechism section 2309, which says that discernment about the just war doctrine is, um, belongs to those who have, belongs to the prudential judgment of those who have responsibility for the common good. Some, notably George Weigel, have twisted this as somehow meaning that the church has sort of a private role to play in praying for peace and offering words of peace. But when it comes down to deciding on peace or war, that's the job of statesmen only. But, the, but what we're saying is, granted that George Weigel is, is twisting that and perverting it, however, we think that there should be a clarification to make clear two things. One, that is that the just war doctrine is in the domain of the public and including the church. And the church has a right to speak out, indeed must speak out on matters of peace and justice. And secondly, that the doctrine of just war teaching deals with not only criteria for going to war, the traditionally labeled jus ad bellum criteria, justice of going to war, but also the criteria that are traditionally known in Latin as the jus in bello, the justice within war. And so while Weigel and others say, oh, it's politicians who know whether a war is right, it's only politicians who know. In fact, some of the requirements of jus in bello within war, for example, not not um, intentionally having any combatant deaths, not targeting any, any non-combatant deaths, not targeting any civilians. Those are things that actually the soldiers and not the politicians would know. And so there's a level of expertise. And regardless, one of the things that's important to say is that the right of conscientious objection belongs in principle to those who are in the military. Each and every one have the right of conscience. And for for most Americans, they often say, no, you entered the military, you just got to do your job and that's it. Well, that's a very, very crass approach. And in fact, it violates one of the most fundamental principles of the Christian church. And that is the principle of conversion. That if someone enlists in the military and whether they come a year or two or three or ten later to object to a particular war or war in any form, those are elements of conversion. And there are many, even some U.S. Catholic leaders in this country, who would deny that right of a soldier to convert. That is a very serious breach of rights. And so we want the catechism and we want doctrine coming from Rome to make this absolutely clear that the right of conscience and that the right of an individual to convert 
particularly particularly when what's at stake here is not conversion to some sort of whimsical, you know, stand, but conversion to the peace of Christ, to the message that was central to the gospel, nonviolent love. That's a conversion to not something incidental, but that's conversion to the heart of the gospel. And that is now not protected in the U.S. military. And even among some U.S. Catholic leaders, the support for that is tepid at best. And so that's one of the reasons why we want to talk with Vatican officials. Another issue that we can just maybe bring up briefly is the issue of the military chaplaincy. We are hearing from soldiers that oftentimes military chaplains, if they are presented with a situation where someone's not sure about their moral um, support for their role in the war, that sometimes military chaplains, Catholic priests even, will say, onward, Christian soldier, onward. You just got to follow your orders and obey. Now, understandable, we've talked with many chaplains, it's understandable that in the, in the heat of combat, you don't want someone to be in those throes of, of crises of conscience. However, it's important that young Catholics in the military know that their church stands with them if they decide to reject their own participation in war. And part of this comes from the fact that military chaplains right now are, I mean, the current situation is they work and are paid and are, and are directed by the Pentagon. And not, they don't work in terms of their, their salary, even the basic who pays you. They don't work for the church. And that should change. Priests especially, but all chaplains, are ministers and ambassadors of Christ. First, not second, but the way it currently stands is first and foremost, they are members of the U.S. military, morale officers, as the military would have it, have them be called. And, and only secondary is their identity as a priest, for example, of the Catholic Church. Well, we want to suggest that that needs to be looked at because it is producing consequences that, that, can, that can be problematic and can even be confusing as to what the church teaches. You know, as a final note here, I'd say this. When we go there, we're going to say, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people said the Catholic Church was the strongest voice opposing the war in Iraq. And indeed, the Vatican needs to be commended. Uh, Perhaps some Catholic leaders in this country should have done more to follow up the calls from the Vatican. But when someone says the Catholic Church opposed the war in Iraq, there is a significant sense in which we we might want to say, well, no, the Catholic Church didn't, because so many of those prosecuting the war from not just the soldiers, but those um, those Catholics who are who were um, who were su- urging support for the war, those Catholics who were orchestrating the war, um, were the ones who, without their help, this war could never have begun and would not now continue. Now that's not to suggest that the Pope or anyone can issue some command and everyone's just going to fall in step. That's not the issue. But the issue is we do need as a church to start to look at the personal aspect of this issue. That war, yes, we must oppose it with statements and letters to congressmen and to the president and to meetings. But war in this country, the ongoing war, reckless wars, can only really be stopped. I mean, as far as Catholics are concerned, the only thing we can really do is to stop participating in them and to stop perpetuating them. And if the Catholic Church were to say, that we will urge all young people to be quite skeptical of military enlistment so long as it means turning over their conscience. That would get the attention 
of U.S. leaders far more than a policy proposal, although a policy proposal should be done as well. But we think it's time for the Catholic Church to even step up, step up the witness and to be a sign of peace and to say, as for us, as for our house, we will follow the Lord. And we will do that not just in statements, but we will do that by urging our people to let their bodies be a sign of peace as well. So that's a little bit about our trip to Rome. And if you want to hear more information or read more information, check our website, catholicpeacefellowship.org. We will be doing some regular blogging from Rome, and we'll also be taking along our podcast equipment. So upon our return, you can hear from various spots where we're at in Rome and to follow the trip. But for now, keep checking the website and do send us any ideas for this Rome trip. And please, as a final note, pray for us as we pilgrimage to the eternal city, Roma. Well, that's it for now. For the Catholic Peace Fellowship and Warcast for Catholics, I'm Mike Griffin.